<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to Stand Up Speak Up, a podcast dedicated to bringing you real stories on topics that usually get swept under the rug. I'm your host, Carla Stevens-Tolstoy. Today we bring you the second episode in a series on missing and murdered Native women and girls in Canada. It's a subject that's very complex, but very important too. That's why we're looking at the story of a 16-year-old Native girl named Delaine, who went missing last year. We hope it will help you to understand what's going on in the country, so you can stand up and speak up. Here's reporter Drew Penner. Last week, we introduced you to Anita Ross, the mother of a 16-year-old girl named Delaine Copanes. This native girl of Ojibwe heritage went missing one year ago and was found dead about a month later in Lake of the Woods in central Canada. That's in downtown Kenora, which is a population of 15,000 people. Canadians pride themselves on a reputation for promoting human rights around the world. That comes across in commercials, talk shows, and newspaper articles. But here at home, we struggle to overcome a despicable record of marginalizing Native peoples and ignoring their problems. Recently, there's been a big push to find out why so many First Nations women and girls go missing or are murdered. That's why we've been following Delane's story. We found Delane. We're trying to find out what we can learn about the state of Aboriginal police relations in this country and figure out where we're headed. Today we step into Anita's world, traveling with her as she tries to make sense of what she sees as confusing circumstances surrounding her daughter's disappearance. Uh, doing some research on that night, uh, uh, do you remember how she was here that night? Here at Stand Up Speak Up, we wanted to look at a specific case of a missing Aboriginal girl and see what happens when you really zoom in. And there's been cases, especially out in the West, where they got the, the, the Aboriginal women and just force-feed them alcohol. It's a sad thing. I mean, obviously, and, and you, there's so many places to hide a body along there. It's no wonder people disappear. Well, I got tackled when I was, like, 17. And it's just the way I heard stories in Kenora, like how they treated Native people. In this episode, we examine the details of the case, look at what the investigation says about the state of Aboriginal police relations in the country, and consider how the story fits with the broader Canadian problem of missing and murdered Aboriginal women. You know what, I think, you know what, I'll tell you right now, I thought your daughter comes, like, hurts. Just like, the way she, you know, like, her, the image of her face comes to my head lots, and, like, I, sometimes I dream about her, and I get, you know what I mean? What I'm seeing is not something that I, I see on a normal basis on grounding. I've seen a, I've seen a lot of groundings. Yeah. I don't really know what happened when I wish I did. Like, honestly, I think, like, she, you got taken back there because no cameras caught, caught her leaving. Delaine was a super quiet girl, but she dished out biting sarcasm and gifted her bubbling persona to the few people she was close with. Like her twin sister Dana, their older sister Lori, 
or the oldest, Darian. Last year, on Saturday, February 27th, Delane followed Darian out of their house with some friends. They actually didn't know them that well. After the older sibling was arrested by police for public intoxication, she ended up hanging out at a dingy apartment complex on Main Street called Lila's Block. Supposedly, Delane just vanished from the building without anyone seeing where she went. Like, she was there, and then all of a sudden she wasn't. Weeks later, just as suddenly, her body appeared, floating face down in the water near the shore off Water Street. Who's this? Placebo. Cool, what song? The Bitter End. The Bitter End, eh? I joined Anita and Lori, Delane's sister, to traverse Kenora's urban landscape, following the last known route the 16-year-old girl took. We drove by the shopping mall grocery store, near the beer and liquor stores. So they were seen in there, they were caught on video on, in there, the girls. But apparently my daughter got picked up over here in the parking lots. That's when she tried to get them to drop her off. I just looked right across the street and he dropped me off. That's where Delane's oldest sister, Darian, was picked up by police around 6 p.m. She was a little bit inebriated after an afternoon of fun back at their house just a block away. Delane was left with a group of people she didn't really know at all. is a small city, but it feels like a small town. And like any small town, there's only so many things you can do on a Saturday night. It usually involves drinking, often drugs. Supposedly, they weren't able to pick up booze from either the beer or liquor store and ended up grabbing a couple jugs of fairly light booze from the nearby brewery. They didn't even manage to score marijuana from their usual guy downtown. They ended up at the infamous Lila's Block. But this is Lila's Block right here, this old, sketchy, ugly building here, that ugly brick one. Apparently, they were seen on the third floor upstairs. And then they made it to see where those people are. You could see them standing there. Yeah. That's where they were. And then they went to the bottom floor. And that's where they were drinking those big bottles of beer. That's when they said that's the last time they seen my daughter. All those kids that she was with. Yeah. You think I should go, go talk to them right now or what? I don't know if they, mm -hmm. if they would know these people that are there. I'll be right back. You know that girl that passed away there, the Delane Copenas? Oh, yeah. yeah. There was garbage strewn um, across the floor kind of, like, of the hallway the with these else. ugly yellowish walls. When I was in there, the guy standing at the door by the back alley looked like he was, you know, keeping six, standing guard. He scratched his left side and leaned against the building like it was a crutch. and I wasn't expecting to find out anything substantial. I just wanted to get a sense of the situation for myself. Do you know if any of these guys would know? After all, this is the spot police say Delane was last seen alive. Okay. Hey, sorry about you, man. I'm not gonna lie. My heart was racing just being in there. Is there anyone here that would be worth talking to, do you think? It's the kind of spot local troublemakers frequent. In fact, one of the girls who showed up the night Delane went missing was Charmaine or Tuscan. At least one of the people who were there said Delane and another girl, Leona Strong, were trying to fight Charmaine 
who showed up to Lila's block with a guy named Travis Smith. A few months later, Charmaine was sent to jail for a year after being charged with forcible confinement and convicted of robbery with a weapon. A 16-year-old male went missing here in town, a white boy, 16 years old. Uh, he got abducted, he got robbed, he got assaulted, he got threatened with death threats, and he escaped, and they kept him against his will. And it was the same girl that was last seen with my daughter. I called the Kenora Courthouse to speak with the Crown Attorney about the case. Now, is this in relation to that robbery case? Yeah. It wasn't my case. I know at least one of the accused are still going through the courts and has not um, been convicted or sentenced yet. I believe Charmaine did complete her case and was sentenced. Would it be fair to say it was a forcible confinement case? In big picture? Yeah. Um, You mean in the criminal definition of a forcible confinement? Uh, I can't say. She's already been released, but her co-accused, Nick Payash, is still going through the court system for the same incident. The night Delane disappeared, their group was keeping an eye out for the police. At one point, they scattered, trying to stay away from the watchful eyes of the Ontario Provincial Police, the OPP. One thing's for sure, Delane's name still echoes in the halls of Lila's block. I didn't think I'd learn any new information that night randomly. Although a little later on, that's exactly what would happen. There was actually way less snow last year than there was this year. Next, we went to visit the location a couple blocks down at the end of the road where Delane's body was discovered. We first visited the spot where a single shoe turned up on top of the lake next to a dock. See where, her, where that little bump is right there of snow? Yeah. And her shoe was found just right there before the well, between here and those tracks. Anita finds it weird that despite hundreds of searchers scouring the community for weeks, no one saw the shoe. Delane's body was discovered about 100 meters away. It turned up a month after she went missing. Do you come out here often? always out here and you can see one two you can actually see the dock from here way over there so there's one two three and then the fourth dock that's where her body was found it's a location that's been burned into anita's mind this year there's giant mounds of snow everywhere but it wasn't especially frigid by northwestern ontario standards Similarly, the day Delane went missing, the temperature had been above freezing, but dropped into the negative double digits Celsius overnight. I have a friend that's a photographer. She said she came out searching for my daughter over here. She's seen one hole by the shore, but it was like probably not even not even a foot deep, just over here. So we kind of ruled that out that she would have actually fallen there. So we don't know. Police say the ice had been unstable at the time. There was only one hole there and then one hole over there. If her shoe was right here, she had to have gone in somewhere around this area. She can't stop coming here. Delene was found wearing a single Etnese shoe, a match to the one discovered on the ice in front of the Anglican church. I spoke with a minister at the church who confirmed he definitely hadn't seen the Aaron shoe in the month the lane was heavy on the hearts of searchers attending their soup kitchen. Anita thinks it could be a clue pointing to an alternate ending to her daughter's story. 
The same month I began to research the story, an Anglican commission focused on reconciliation and justice urged churchgoers to build bonds with Native people and specifically reflect on the severity of the boarding schools run by the church, which played a large role in destroying Aboriginal culture. One former Native RCMP officer, that's Canada's National Police Service, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, told me the social problems faced by Native youth are a direct result of these kids losing touch with their culture. Even official Canadian government reports have found the residential school system was a critical part of wrenching First Nations away from their traditional way of life, creating a lost generation. These schools were run by Roman Catholic, Anglican, Presbyterian, and United Churches, which had a vested interest in separating these students from their spiritual and cultural practices. As I investigated Delane's story, I kept running into examples of how directly the lives of some of the people involved in this story had been shaped by relatives being shipped off to distant boarding schools or disappearing altogether. My friend Yari told me something really chilling about the spot Delane's body was found the day before I went there with Anita. I told uh, my buddy Huey and I told Adrian, I said, oh, you know what, I bet I know where she is. And they were like, where? And I said, I bet she's by the police station, like by the docks. I was like, there's docks down there. I was like, I bet that's where she is, man. I was like, you know, it's like she's been missing for a couple days now. And I said, if this girl wasn't depressed or whatever, like, and somebody wanted to do something, like, I would probably do, put it there. <laughs> like, I'm just thinking, like, outside the box here. There's, like, a fenced-in area there where there's some docks. There's a little walkway down there. So I, I, I've been down that way, and I was looking around there, and I said to my dad one time, when we were down there, we were waiting for my sister to, like, finish in court when I was young, and I said, I said, hey, there's a little trail down there. I didn't even see that before. And I was thinking about that. I was like, I wonder if that girl went down that way and, or if somebody did something to her. Just the same, you could sink to the bottom of a lake. As we drove around under the orange glow of streetlights, with black and white police SUVs passing by at regular intervals, we spotted Phoenix Kiesick. He was one of the last people to see Delane alive. Look like a Phoenix, eh? That's so weird that I haven't seen him in forever, and all of a sudden when I'm with you, he's there. Who's that? One of the guys that was with my daughter. You just seen him? I'm pretty sure that was him. Anita's been wanting to talk to him for the past year. This is the first time she's really been able to confront him. I don't want you to. I don't want you to hate me. I know. I'm just saying I don't want you guys to hate me. I want to tell myself the story. I just felt too much pressure. And to be honest, I'm quitting drinking after January 1st. It's my New Year's resolution. No, I'll come talk to you. Just I felt so much pressure. Not not just with, like just a bunch of shit. Like I had a bunch of pressure on my chest, and I felt like overwhelmed. You know what I mean? Like really, really stressed out. And I didn't want to talk to you. Just, Damn, I, I, I went downhill for a while. And, you know, my, my, my mom's sister, she was actually working as a prostitute in Vancouver. And we don't, we don't even know what happened to her. I thought of my auntie, you know what I mean? Because that's the first woman I ever heard of going missing like that. My mom's sister. She, she went missing in the 
peace out of Vancouver and like it's tough man like you know like out of our people especially the women they're really vulnerable and everything you know what I mean just not not even just naive or anything they just but I feel they're targeted yeah yeah they're targeted damn right they are I was one of the last people with her and I feel like the biggest asshole for like let like you know letting her letting her go like we're, we're on our second one there's like half left or like a little more than half and I remember just me Jesse and Noah and Jesse was like all like fucking drunk right and he, he was sipping most of it to himself and she was there was nobody else there it was just us three guys and then we weren't walking the front the front doors over here at the Lila we seen cops in the front we went into the back came over here walked in the back of the Kenora Daily Monitor News hit there and then we made our way around I think it was this way, and I went to the bowling alley, and I called for, for a ride from my mom. And my mom picked me up. It was like 9:05. Like I'm trying to remember it as vividly as I can. You know, like I'm when we were at Delilah. Yeah. We had two growlers. We drank one whole beer with them. The second one. Which we by the way is a totally sketchy place. I know, I know. We had half a growler, right? Half a growler left. That's the last I remember them being around. Like they didn't even finish the second growler with us. They were. Her and Leona, the last I seen Leona, actually I seen Leona last before her. She was bitching about her jacket and getting mad at Noah, my bro Noah. And she threw a jacket on top of Pastor Friend's van and she's just flipping shit. Next thing you know, cops show up in the front. We're looking out the window, Jesse leaning against the fucking uh, heater right there. And then fucking next thing you know, uh, we look out the window, we're like, hey, there's cops right there. And we fucking fuck off in the back. Jesse stays, couple of them stay, right? Couple of people that are in the block, going around the back, one over here to uh, throw a deal on the and sitting there, and afterwards, the cops are still there. Nope, fucked up. We went over here to bowling alley, cops seen me on camera and everything. Like, man, you know, I, me myself, I would never be capable of hurting anybody. You know, like that. You know what I mean? I, I'm a nice guy. With everybody like looking at me like the bad guy, me trying to like say my word or whatever, plead my case. I thought at the time wasn't helping. So about eight months later, I, I just left. One current police officer with a different department told me that while ice tends to preserve evidence, once a body's been submerged, even in icy conditions, as long as the one month mark, crucial clues start to disappear. He also told me that from his experience, the majority of missing Aboriginal cases turn out to be suspicious. Anita can imagine a scenario where her daughter's body was dumped in the water long after she went missing, or where she went down to the ice with others who haven't come forward. But. The autopsy is clear. Nothing points to a version of events where the youth didn't drown. The family took their own photos of Delane's body after she was discovered. It looks pretty gruesome. Parts of Delane's body were so unscathed the family was able to have an open casket funeral. But marks and discoloration around Delane's arms and feet even look weird to me. It's easy for me to understand why Delane's mom has questions even after reading the coroner's report. But let's be honest, what do I know? None of us here at the podcast are qualified to make any judgments on human remains, so we reached out to experts to learn more about the factors at play in Delane's death. We spoke with Jim Wigmore, a forensic alcohol toxicologist, to understand the effect alcohol can have on the body and to get a sense of how many drinks Delane must have consumed before death. When you start to lose heat from your, um, from your central body, which of course is um, the most important thing is your brain it controls everything, your body shut, shuts that down and you get, um, you know, the, the heat's supposed to be centralized. Now, with alcohol, there's a risk factor for hypothermia because alcohol uh, uh, allows the blood to flow into the extremities. Okay, so the body's trying to shut down the flood, blood flow to the extremities so it won't lose heat. 
alcohol tends to uh, release the um, the blood into the extremities, and so you actually uh, reduce heat to a greater extent. So without uh, you shouldn't be drinking alcohol outside in the cold uh, because it does increase the risk for hypothermia. So like what happens is when it starts getting colder and colder, you're um, you're you don't behave rationally anymore. You act in bizarre ways, you wander around and things like that, and then eventually, in her case, she may have fallen down and, and, and then drowned, but it's probably related to hypothermia and then perhaps the final drowning. Yeah, it could be she's gone out to, to uh, uh, urinate or something or whatever, just go off and then couldn't find her way back. Are there ever cases where you might see something like this result from some type of abduction or any sort of missing and murdered Aboriginal woman case that you've seen before, or do those usually fit into a different sort of pattern? Uh, to this one, this seems a typical pattern of an accidental death. I, again, I don't know the, wouldn't know the details. I mean, from toxicology alone, you can't d determine, you know, whether she was abducted or anything like that. That would have to be the pathology and, and what the pathologist report would say. So they're looking for signs of evidence, signs of sexual intercourse, signs of things. Any, you know, any missing body like that, or Aboriginal girl, or any girl that age, or other, you know, for unexplained death, they do a t total autopsy. But that's what it seems like to me. But I mean, who, who knows? I mean, there's been cases of, um, especially out in the West, where um, where the guys are like not abducted, but got the, the the Aboriginal women and just force feed them alcohol. You know, and to, in order to uh, to have sexual intercourse, actually, one guy, I think, he caused the death of several. He just gave him more and more uh, booze, and um, as you know, alcohol is a, is a, is a, um, can cause fatalities. Usually, it's around 350 and above. So, I would not expect the alcohol to cause her um, to be daily poisoned by alcohol, but it would add to her intoxication and would add to the risk of hypothermia. I think one of the things that, you know, her, her mother has a hard time dealing with is that, you know, there's, she sees, she's seen these photos of her daughter, you know, pulled from the lake where, you know, parts of her body are basically, you know, completely normal, it almost looks like, you know, like they were yeah. able to have an open casket funeral and then, and that's yeah. on the one hand, but then on the other hand, there's parts of her body, and I've seen this myself with the, with the wrists and the, perhaps the ankles where they're quite red and there's some weird kind of marks on them that, you know, almost looks like, well, they could be almost like little cigarette burns or her mother envisioned ligature marks. And I mean, that's a word that she's brought up with me quite frequently. Now, I, I know nothing about this. You know, I've never looked at, at more than a couple maybe dead bodies in my life. And so I don't really know what to tell her one way or the other. But I mean, is what I'm describing, is that something that you see in submerged bodies for over the course of a month? From just my my slight knowledge, yeah, there's all sorts of you can see all sorts of different um, things that that uh, form the body and the skin, the lividity in that uh, post mortem. So the, what the pathologist would do be looking at these marks and seeing if it's uh, due post mortem or before death. Obviously, they've done that. Well, they should have done that, and um, that's what you should see in the report. So it's actually it's consistent in some ways with with her drinking, um, perhaps being influenced more by influenced by hypothermia. So you you uh, don't behave normally. You fall down a few times. Um, you cause scrapes and that, and uh, you don't know where you're going, and you, you potentially end up in the lake or uh, whatever. You know, this high alcohol level plus uh, cold night. Uh, can cause stumbling and all this stuff and, and um, um, uh, behavior where they, they're not going the proper direction. It's not um, unexpected, but who knows? If, like I said, if someone maybe picked her up and then released her, it's 
coming home, I don't know. Uh, that could have contributed too. But um, again, it's up to the pathologist to, to, to see and make the uh, interpretation because they've done the autopsy. I spoke with drowning expert Bill Raleigh of Raleigh Forensic Engineering twice about factors you'll come across in regular drowning investigations. So what, what's happening is that the body is, is processing the alcohol out. Just, the second the heart shuts down, your metabolism shuts down. But at that point, it, it, everything's locked in time. So that, that's, where, that's what she was at the time of death. Which is, yeah. gro- which is grossly intoxicated. I mean, she was she wasn't getting to the point where she was a medical issue, but she was she was uh, very very intoxicated. The second time I spoke with him was after I sent over a picture taken by Delane's family of her body. Hello, Judith. This is Bill Rowley returning your call. How are you? He was astounded by what he saw. You've got to understand that. This is out of my area. I'm not a physician. While he stressed he doesn't usually deal with cold water drownings, he said he's looked at some long-term drowning cases before. And I've been been involved in hundreds of drownings. And all I can say is... He said that marks on Delane's body seemed weird enough to him that he stressed I needed to get a forensic pathologist to take a look at the case. Somebody that is familiar with what's going on because this what I'm seeing is not something that I I see on a normal basis on drowning and I've seen a, I've seen a lot of drownings you know I'm someone that has seen more drownings than any one of your pathologists or coroners has seen because this is you know this is what I've been doing I I monitored everything that came through the Consumer Product Safety Commission as far as what they picked up on drownings in the United States for 11 years. So I've, I've had I've had somewhere probably four or 5,000 drownings. This is not consistent. It looks like her hands were bound. And so what you, what you need is somebody that is a forensic pathologist that can go in and take a look at it. Something had to, to cause those marks, and I don't know what it is. It's not what you would see normally. That's all I can tell you. Support for Stand Up Speak Up comes from Wearable Therapy by Toki. Your choices matter, and you can use fashion as a tool to make people think. Head over to wearable-therapy-toki, that's a two eyes.com, to check out a wide range of unique, ethically manufactured apparel designed to spark a conversation on the issues you care about most. And thanks for tuning in. It's only recently that the idea of fighting for missing and murdered Native women has become a national project. It sprung out of headlines about serial killers like Robert Picton, who told an undercover agent he'd killed 49 women. Half of the victims police could identify were Aboriginal. The most recent push began in 2014, after the body of 15-year-old Tina Fontaine was pulled from the Red River in Winnipeg, just two hours west of Kenora. That's where I started my journey for this podcast. Right next to the Red River the scene of bodies floating in the water, bodies washing up, and the reignition of a Canadian desire to know what's going on with missing and murdered Aboriginal women. 
there's a palpable sense that there are issues to be explored. The broad contours of what the issue of missing and murdered Native women is all about were traced in by understandably sensational headlines about serial killer Picton, who had human remains on his suburban Vancouver pig farm. It was given shape by the disappearance of Native women along a remote stretch of Canadian road called the Highway of Tears. While hitchhiking recently in BC, I actually met a woman named Carol who once hitchhiked that route. Have you ever thought, I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Kundal, and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network. You know, a white woman that's grown up here in British Columbia. And what's your impression when you hear people talk about the Highway of Tears? You know, having hitchhiked on that road. I mean, what was the experience like for you? What do you remember? It's beautiful. It's uh, it's a beautiful highway. It's very isolated. You know, you have to go a fair distance before you uh, run into civilization. There's lots of camping. It's isolated. Based on your experiences and, you know, from what you understand about, you know, people who pick up hitchhikers, I mean, what do you think of when you hear about the narrative of, you know, missing and murdered Aboriginal women when it comes to, you know, the Highway of Tears or otherwise? Well, I don't know. I think mostly it makes me sad that it's an And I don't know. Like, it seems to me that you know, to have that many women missing over such a long time, and I suspect there's also men as well, and and I suspect there's also, you know, Caucasians that have gone missing as well, you know, like lots of people, not just Aboriginals, but yes, the Aboriginals are well documented. So, what do I think about it? Well, it's a sad thing, I mean, obviously, and, and you, there's so many places to hide a body along there, no wonder people disappear. But probably, I mean, what does that mean? Does that mean it's, uh, a trucker, you know? No, not really have anything against truckers, but somebody that has no uh, tie to the area that uh, is really, yeah, there could be a serial, serial killer or killers out there. It's a sad reflection on our society. That's it's a sad reflection on our society. That's for sure. I'd agree with Carol there. Definitely. I spoke with an administrator of a First Nations reserve who knew one of the people who disappeared along this northern BC route. She said there's been a huge problem with underreporting of disappearances. A native man, who was a police officer with the RCMP in BC at the time, told me alcohol is a factor in a lot of the disappearances of Aboriginal women and wondered if predatory wildlife may have been to blame for some of the people vanishing. In 2012, an official missing persons inquiry launched in response to the Picton murders concluded there was systemic bias in the Vancouver police force which allowed the serial killer to go on killing. It pointed to sexism, racism, and the effects of colonialism as root causes for violence against women. 
That's when you really started to hear about First Nations groups calling for the Canadian government to launch a national inquiry into missing and murdered Native women. So when Tina Fontaine's body was found in the Red River in Winnipeg, Liberal leader Justin Trudeau used it as an opportunity to highlight the fact Stephen Harper, who was Prime Minister at the time, a Conservative, didn't. And after Delane Copenis went missing last year, people from far and wide brought her story up too as one more example of why they thought it was time for an inquiry. A few months later, Harper was defeated in a nail-biter of an election, and Trudeau set the official review in motion. We actually reached out to the media office of the inquiry, but they sent us a note saying it's too early for them to comment. Actually, it hasn't all been smooth sailing for this landmark effort. About a month ago, the inquiry parted ways with its communications director, Michael Hutchinson. The respected anchor from the Aboriginal People's Television Network took to Twitter to highlight the irony of having to leave just a week after finding his own missing cousin. Prime Minister Trudeau is finding it hard to keep his promises to Native people, including failing to recognize fishing rights, breaking his promise to follow the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, and agreeing to build pipelines a lot of First Nations don't want. Once, I was hanging out at a bar following a music festival. I struck up a conversation with a white kid around my age who told me he knew one of Robert Picton's accomplices. He said the man was still out there taking advantage of vulnerable Native girls. He came across as a half-brag, half-cry for help. It's one of those stories you hear that makes so little sense to be told in a bar that you almost wonder if it's true. He wasn't about to reveal any names, of course, and I never saw the guy again, but the encounter made me wonder, and I vowed to raise awareness about the issue when I got the chance. During a recent trip to Vancouver, I bumped into a native activist named Takaya, who was 16 years old, the same age Delane was when she passed away. Hello, my name is Takaya. I am a member of the Tla'amun First Nations. Well, we got talking there about the issues of missing and murdered Aboriginal women, which has become mm. quite a topic in society. And first of all, just generally speaking, I mean, when did you first kind of start hearing about these kind of issues? Well, I didn't kind of receive an education on colonial institutions and kind of First Nations genocide and, and the different systemic and individual issues facing First Nations today was more of a kind of lived experience of growing up within a community where I witnessed dysfunction and substance abuse and um, had family members who were survivors of residential school and survivors of attempted murder uh, and, and rape uh, who escaped that situation while being kind of degraded and demeaned and neglected by police. I guess the statistics that give you a image of where Indian country is today as far as abuse towards our women um, was something that I witnessed on a very personal level. In the circles that I associate myself and I can't speak for all nations, but looking at numbers and estimates, you can see that the neglect from kind of law enforcement and proper 
investigation into the, the disappearances of these women is something that is felt on a very large, disgustingly large level with indigenous communities. I know that my family has been affected by the violence towards our women. That's my own experience. That's tough to deal with, eh? I mean, when, when the people that are supposed to protect you are the ones that you're, you, know, you have to ask questions about, right? Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Sometimes it surfaces on a more tangible level in kind of the relationship between Indigenous people and the police, but as far as the perceptions that Indigenous people hold and that my family holds is there's a definite hesitancy and fear and disenfranchisement from the police. Like, my dad is a residential school survivor, aunties and uncles, and we are not just taught through, like, anti-police rhetoric in our communities. It's more of teaching your kids that they might not be safe in the hands of the police because of what they've experienced and what their people have experienced. You know, it seems like you're taking on that role as an activist. Mm -hmm. What is the message that you hope to get out and what are some of the lessons you hope the broader Canadian society does pick up on from some of these tragic circumstances that we do hear about? Mm. Well, my immediate concern was kind of embedded in this fear that I've had since I was a little girl of reflecting on my community even a few generations from now and uh, seeing the total devastation of culture and the division within our community because our central sense of identity that is of coexisting with the land uh, is now disappeared. So I I want to work with cultural um, revitalization programs and on a larger scale for that to be successful we need to face and dismantle the institutional racism and, and bias against First Nations people. One thing that I really fucked up on was I said I'll make sure your girls get back home and you know what one of the girls did that I was with your daughter Darian. Jillian didn't, and I hold that, I'll forever hold that on myself, you know, that how hard that hurts me, man, I mean, I, could, I can't even imagine the pain that they feel, or like, you know, her family, her immediate family, and all her friends. We spoke with Delane's oldest sister, Darian, who was the last of their family to see Delane alive. She says over their teenage years, they've been growing closer. I'm closer to her than I was to my other sisters, to be honest. Ah, um. Delane's sense of humor and her sweet personality is something she enjoys looking back on. There was one time I was like really sad, right? And I was crying. And my other, my other sister didn't know what to do, I guess. And she came into the room and she was like, she laid beside me and started holding me. She said, I'll stay here with you until you fall asleep. And yeah, I fell asleep. Darian says she'd heard of the issue of missing and murdered indigenous women before, but it wasn't something she's paid much attention to, at least not until her own sister went missing. I never really followed it. Like, I heard of it, right? Missing murdered indigenous women. But, I don't know, I just never really thought about it. Darian says... 
you would have never brought Delane to drink at Lila's Walk. And there are a bunch of things that Darian still doesn't understand. Like, why did the police arrest her without even asking her for ID? Instead of hauling her off to the drunk tank, couldn't they have dropped her off at home? Something they've apparently done in the past? I kept asking the cops, or when I was at the junk tank, I kept like practically begging to call my mom. I was like, can you let me call my mom, please, please, please? You know, like, they're like, no, you have to sleep it off and everything. I was like, I was like I'm okay. And then, uh, they want to listen. And then, yeah. Delane was a girl who saw a bright future for herself. She would talk about, like, you know, like, big goals and stuff, dreams that she had. She started to consider the possibility of joining the military, going into architecture, video game design, or tattoo art. I don't know, she had, like, really a lot of stuff she wanted to do. I was like, well, you got big dreams. And I was like, I know you could, you know, do them. When she went missing... The whole community took to the streets, put up signs, and posted online, many using the MMIW hashtag to connect Delane's story to the national discussion on missing and murdered Indigenous women. Honestly, I didn't expect anybody, like, you know, like, outside of my family and, like, you know, close friends helping out, looking for her. Like, I didn't expect it to get that big. Like, I was so surprised. That's why I told my mom to at first. Like, I thought no, no one was going to help. Really? And I don't know. And then it started happening. And there's, like, so much people, like, showing support and everything. And, you know. That's something that Darian took heart in. Like, whoa. Yeah, it's just nice. And brought the whole community together. Darian says it seemed to her like it took police couple days to treat Delane's disappearance seriously. She thinks it would have been a different story had her little sister been white. Uh, I don't really like cops at all. I don't know, I just don't like them. I just don't. Well, I got tackled when I was like 17. And it's just the way I heard stories in Kenora, like how they treated native people. Like, I met some nice cops during the church, right? I kind of, I was like, oh, there are some nice ones out there. Uh, do you think yeah. they did a they did a, a fair job, an adequate job for the most part? Uh, I, I don't know. Like, I, I think 50-50. You know, like, I felt like they could have done more. Like, I don't know. I just have a lot of ideas what they could have done. I feel like they should have done. Like, it never really hit me until Delane went missing, didn't come back, and then I started learning more about the missing murdered woman. Like, I heard of the highlight tears once. The cops could be taking these cases more seriously. Honestly, I think if it was white people, right, white ladies, it, they'd be all over, all over that, trying to like, help their people. I don't know, this is what I think. But maybe our people are more targeted, too, for some reason. I don't know. I know there's some of them are serious and stuff. I don't know. Like, they're doing their jobs, right? But I just feel like, like a lot more could, be, could have been done. That's all.
Turns out, Kenora has a huge problem with at-risk kids going missing. Last year, the community had 565 runaway youth and missing persons incidents. That's down from almost 900 the previous year, although sexual assaults jumped 36% over the same time period. It's become such a crisis that Ontario Provincial Police recruited a new yellow Labrador retriever, Cinch, specifically to help deal with the significant number of youth who go missing, many of whom are Aboriginal. Kenora also provides a good snapshot of some of the obstacles to improving relations between Native people who are overrepresented in the criminal justice system and police. A few years ago, Sergeant Lloyd White, a 21-year veteran of the former Kenora Police Service, was fingered with neglect of duty and discreditable conduct during the investigation of the death of Max Kakagamak, a man from North Spirit Lake First Nation. Two other officers were called out quite severely by the judge in the case. It was basically a grand slam of police misconduct. You know, altered affidavits, failing to investigate a potential suspect who is a relative, all that stuff. The result was a deeply held belief among Native people became more entrenched that local white police officers aren't willing to investigate Aboriginal murders properly. The OPP had to take over that murder case. In 2008, the OPP were given the reins to maintaining law and order in that community, and the Kenora Police Service was disbanded. An Aboriginal Treaty 3 police force was set up too. Just weeks after we began looking into the Delane Copenes case, the Kenora OPP made national headlines again when a 28-year veteran of the force was charged with an aggravated assault, uttering threats and breaching bail conditions for off-duty behavior. If you're the mother of a native girl who goes missing, it's understandable that you might wonder, do they really care? Were the circumstances of my daughter's disappearance properly investigated? The community's been trying to develop a network of support agencies to improve the chances for marginalized residents, even introducing a new alcohol treatment program downtown this year. During the time I was looking into Delane's story, the provincial police force had to order a wide-scale re-examination of how it's handled rape cases after Canada's national newspaper, the Globe and Mail, found it had dismissed more than a third of rape accusations as unfounded, when research generally shows it's usually less than 10% around the world. There was no evidence showing any sexual interference had taken place after Delane disappeared, but her mom thinks the water could have washed evidence away. Probably the most surprising thing to me was talking to Kayla Swanson. She reported hearing one of the last girls to see Delane alive admit to seeing Delane get into a truck with another couple of people. Now Kayla says she actually had a positive impression of the police based on the work they did to investigate the murder of a family member. Anita Ross was there when Kayla reported the story to police. In fact, Kayla used Anita's cell phone to make the call. She said that they were all um, kind of, everybody was kind of dispersing in their own direction. I don't know if there was, I think she said something about cops or something was going on and they were all kind of scattering and and Delane went and got in the vehicle by herself and they set off. That's where I was told is where she was picked up was in the back alley by Lila's block. It was a dark old school truck like they said an older looking style truck. But for Kayla, her big concern is that the Ontario Provincial Police took her statement and said they'd follow up but didn't. I know that we were trying to get a hold of the main investigator, but I know we didn't catch through to that exact person. Um, but we did talk to somebody that was, I, I thought, at least on the case or knew of the case. 
and um, yeah, I left my my over the phone kind of statement, I guess, um, with that person, and they had said that they would follow up and send somebody to do an actual interview with me. Yeah, I still haven't talked to uh, anybody like about it. Yeah, I've been waiting. I haven't gotten a phone call, and I have this exact number. And yeah, I figured that they would ever at least, you know, try to at least stop by and like, you know, do a handwritten statement where I'm sitting with them verbally, even if it was recorded or you know, video statement, anything. I thought something like that would have happened, but nothing did. I, I honestly don't know, like I think it may have been, I don't know if they just thought it was somebody trying to poke fingers or I don't know. I honestly don't know, but I've been waiting for them and I actually, when I did run into an officer and I asked them about it, they, they just said that they would get back to me and that was it. We've actually been trying to contact the Kenora OPP for a while. After about a month, they denied our request for an interview. Open beacon arrest. Hey, I just wanted to follow up. Sent you an email a while ago. No, there's there's been a couple of requests from many other outlets, and everything everyone's been declined. I'm I'm just curious to know, like I like for myself, right? Like I always want to make sure that I'm, you know, presenting a complete story accurately and everything else. And I'm just wondering what might be the reason why you you know might not be interested in speaking on this uh, this topic. Well, corporate just gave a notification that we're just declining at any time. It was there wasn't a reason provided and. Police told us in a statement that they received Kayla's tip and did investigate it. I don't really know what happened to my sister. I wish I did. If you believe what Darian Phoenix and Delane's mom say about how much alcohol Delane drank throughout the final day, it's hard to see how she could have gotten as drunk as the autopsy showed her to be without an additional chapter to the evening that we haven't learned about yet. Like, honestly, I think, like, she you got taken back there because no cameras caught caught her leaving. To me, I believe they're withholding information to these individuals. We showed the autopsy report to a respected Canadian forensic pathologist named John C. Butt of Pathfinder Form. He said it looked like a thorough examination and didn't show any evidence of physical or sexual assault. The marks around Delane's ankles and wrists seem like they can be accounted for by processes that took place after death. But Delane's mom doesn't believe it. But this is where I buried her. 
snow fell softly in the pinkish-orange light of night. Can you see that? The tall pole is actually a search pole that, that my um, grandma had us put in front of our house. Kind of see like a bunch of flowers. There. Three three sticks kind of yeah. sticking up, yeah, sort of. Thing. But the one in the middle is her clan pole, and there's actually um, uh, a bear. That's her dutem. They call dutem, which means clan. Anita says she's thinking about starting a foundation to help other people who go missing. And we honestly thought we were going to have a better outcome. We thought we were going to find her alive. Sadly. So I'm out that way. Anita sees her daughter, Delane, everywhere. In dimes she discovers on the ground, messages from mediums and spiritual healers, and she shows up in powerful dreams. There's no healing a gash in your soul the size of a child. There is no solace with the presence of unanswered questions. There is no quiet in your heart when dark visions keep returning. You try to take comfort in memories and hold close the ones you have left. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Stand Up, Speak Up. We hope you've learned a little bit about a pressing issue that could be hiding under the surface right where you live. There are plenty of ways to get involved in supporting marginalized youth and vulnerable women. Everyone can fight racism by treating the people around you the way you'd want to be treated. If you have something to say on the topic, don't be afraid to stand up and speak up. Cheers. of the Boomsday Alliance. I'm also known as Jamie McDonald. Uh, I host a podcast called Intergalactic Interviews. Um, but I wrote this song and it's called Chill. And uh, it was part of a collection I put out recently called the Self-Control EP. And uh, I wrote this song and uh, a lot of the time I was envisioning a lot of the community centers and skate parks I'd come across. And especially back home in my hometown in Kenora, it really uh, imparted itself on me in many ways. And I was able to find a lot of solace in being able to, you know, take comfort in, in uh, being able to put my energy in something a little bit more positive than some of the other people around me. And, you know, I don't blame them, and I'm sure that situations get caught up all the time. And I just feel like if a lot of people had those opportunities, they'd probably be able to... Uh, you know, maybe succeed and have an easier time in life, just like anyone else, you know? So, anyway, I hope you guys enjoy this song. This song, again, it's called Chill, and uh, it's one of my personal favorites. I love it. Take care. Dial down, I'll drown in the digital, biblical realm of the self-made physical level. You will hate any devil you create. I am the revolutionary thoughts of modern man. Wait for the silence. I'll take you to another place, uncharted and unassuming of others' taste. Unopposed, I'm moving at my brother's pace. Seek my father's calm and my mother's grace. I am raised to brace for the breakthrough. Make due placements, pay for my main view. Name two other 
artists who could name you. Hey dudes, break crews and see where it takes you. First, first you gotta be alone. Isolate the great feeling when you feel a song. Separated from the rush of a real home. Real progress, then a real long chill. This week, for a little bonus content snippet, we wanted to bring you the story of someone who actually met serial killer Robert Picton in person. Jerry, a 60-year-old man, told us about the time he got into an argument with Canada's most prolific serial killer. So you went to, um, you ended up going to Robert Picton's shop. I don't know if he owned it or whatever. I did not go to Robert Picton. Oh, his, 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 not Piggy's Palace. I never no, no, did. No, no, no. I went to his. P&G's used building supplies, I believe it was called. Well, what were you Had to buy that? doors. It was a used building supply. Ask me another question. You go in there and you meet with Robert Picton. Yeah. Seems like you didn't get along right away. Like you had a bit of an argument. What was that all about? It was over the door, the price of the door. It was, the price was too high, so I argued the price with him. And he said, I'm not the owner. He'll have, you know, pay this price. So I bought the door. But I did, a month later or so, I went back to get something else. And the same guy was there. So I talked to him. He was yes and no man. He did not elaborate on anything. He would just, this is it. This is what I want for it. And that was it. Very dirty, filthy, scruffy beard. And that was it. A filthy store, too. So I left. After purchasing, I left. 
when you're buying something off somebody in a store, you would not know his past, what he does or anything. Months later, or a year later, whatever it is, that's when he got charged. I didn't know. Yeah. So you don't know at the time. That's so crazy that you knew one of his victims too. Like, I yeah. mean, it's yeah. so sad. I, hey? I found out much later on, much, much later on. And uh, she was one of the victims. Very unfortunate. I knew the mother very well. I grew up with the mother. The problem of missing and murdered Indigenous women can't be solved through easy answers. But you can help make a difference if you stand up and speak up. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com.